musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, uh, here we are once again with me uh, just getting over another head cold, but nonetheless feeling relief and not being completely inundated by political advertising day and night. To tell the truth, uh, I was going to make a little statement about the U.S. elections right now, but uh, the more I thought about what I wanted to say, well, (laughs) the more it sounded like just all of the other political messages that I'm tired of hearing. So I'll just let this election pass without any more comments by me. Other than to say that, uh, although I wasn't surprised, I was uh, once again disappointed that my candidate for president uh, hardly even got mentioned. And uh, she was Jill Stein of the Green Party, uh, the only person in the race to whom I could actually give my vote and uh, not just be voting against someone and uh, for the lesser of two evils. So, it looks like uh, four more years with uh, evil the lesser, (laughs) which uh, isn't actually something to be very excited about. What I am excited about, however, is the fact that uh, thanks to several donors who hail from places as far removed from here as uh, Chicago, Sweden, Germany, Norway, and uh, places in between, our hosting expenses have now been covered through the end of this year. And uh, so now it's up to me to get some more podcasts out. But I want to be sure that our donors know how much I appreciate their help. It's what makes it possible for these talks to reach so many people around the world, and I certainly couldn't do it without you. And let me just say a quick word about the status of the unheard Terrence McKenna tapes. There are two reasons that I'm not playing them just yet. The main reason is that I want to first podcast all of the Planque Norte lectures from Burning Man and in the order in which they were presented, which means that there are more than a dozen talks already in the queue. The other reason is that uh, I'm still waiting to hear from uh, my nemesis attorneys, uh, as he's both promised and threatened on several occasions. Hopefully they'll uh, yet get in touch with me so that we can uh, see if we can work things out amicably without uh, all of the name-calling that seems to be his favorite tactic right now. So it'll be sometime next year before we pick back up on the McKenna Talks. However, uh, in case you've forgotten uh, about all the people who spoke at Burning Man at the Palenque Norte Lectures, well, uh, we're still in for many treats, including Daniel Pinchbeck, Paul Stamets, Robert Forte, John Gilmore, Rick Doblin, Allison and Alex Gray, and uh, several others whose uh, names escape me at the moment. But uh, the name that's on the tip of my tongue right now is that of Charles Shaw, who we'll be hearing from in just a moment. I first met Charles uh, a couple of years ago when I emceed a MAPS conference uh, at which he was speaking, and I'd already known about his book, Exile Nation, but uh, to meet Charles in person for me was a real treat. Although I've been around the tribe for quite a while, I have to admit that after spending some time with Charles, I came to the conclusion that no one I'd met before him had even come close to the street cred that he has. You see, uh, the main thing that I think that is uh, maybe lacking by many of us is a good understanding of what it's like to not only be an enemy of the state in its war on non-prescription drugs, but to be a person of color as well. As you already know, the uh, war on drugs was originally, and continues to be today, primarily a race war. 
So if you are white and male, uh, like me, well, I'm afraid that we really don't know uh, deep down and from a personal point of view how terribly devastating this war is on poor people, young black and brown men in particular. And I guess that I should mention that while Charles himself is white, his life's trajectory has taken him to the other side of life where he experienced firsthand the ways in which poor people and people of color are the ones who are suffering the most from our drug laws. So I hope that as we listen to Charles Shaw's story right now that you'll come away with a deeper sense of just how unjust the war on drugs truly is. And uh, hopefully you'll come away with more empathy for those who have been caught in the web of unjust drug laws. Hi guys, how you doing tonight? Thanks for joining us for the Planque Norte speaker series in this very dusty Tuesday on the playa. Um, welcome to the Crystal Cavern and Camp Above the Limit. Um, my name is Kirk Bentonen, and uh, I have the honor of introducing Charles Shaw. He is an activist and author of the critically acclaimed um, Exile Nation, and he's going to talk to you guys about the war on consciousness and drugs. Thank you very much, Charles. All right, thanks. Thank you. Thanks for coming out, everybody. Tuesday's uh, usually hit or miss out here, uh, particularly when there's a dust storm. So I'm glad you guys all came out. Uh, I've been giving this talk for the last uh, about a couple of years in various formats, um, but this is the one I've been giving kind of on the festival circuit this year. I call it Living in the Exile Nation, and uh, it, it really is about this idea of two separate cultures existing in the United States uh, and two different statuses of existence in the United States. Um, the exile nation is my m metaphor, for lack of a better word, really, for the people that live in a state of disenfranchisement within our culture here. Uh, very much like Jim Crow and apartheid laws, uh, having a felony conviction and having a drug conviction essentially makes you a second-class citizen. Uh, although there isn't an official designation that puts you in a lower caste in the eyes of the government or the society, there is a cultural sentence that shoves you into a place. And there is a lot of social backlash that involves not being able to get a job, uh, not being able to build a life, and living your entire existence with this kind of scarlet C for convict on your chest. Um, and this also relates to the other flip side of this, which is the literal definition of exile, which are the millions and millions of people at this point over the last seven years that have been deported from the United States. Uh, mostly people that had spent a good significant portion of their life in the United States. Uh, and when we're talking about Mexican-Americans, this is the largest single group. Uh, many of them came over here when they were children. They lived American lives, went to American schools, hung out with American kids, spoke American English, and didn't know anything about Mexico. For whatever reason, they get in trouble with the law, and their paperwork hasn't been, you know, cleared, and they don't have full citizenship. And it takes about, you know, it can take up to 40 years to get naturalized these days. 
And every time you make a little mistake on your form, it goes back to the bottom of the pile and so on and so forth. And if you don't have money to pay an immigration lawyer, then you can't get it advanced up back up to where it was. And, and so these people who largely exist, particularly the parents kind of outside the culture, um, speaking Spanish and keeping with the Mexican cultural ways that they had, their children are doing the exact opposite, becoming Americans. But when they get in trouble, they're all deported back to Mexico or the nearest Spanish-speaking country, if they're Salvadoran or Guatemalan or Costa Rican or Argentine. And they're stripped of their identity, stripped of their resources, and left to fend for themselves. And in the case of Mexico, they you know, drop them in three of the biggest war zones that uh, exist in that country um, related to the Mexican drug war, right? So it's a significant problem. You know, it's not just a kind of a subcultural issue. Uh, by the latest and most accurate statistics, there are currently two and a half million p people in prison. There are an additional seven and a half million that are being actively monitored by the state every day on supervision, probation, or parole. There are an additional 13 million people walking around with a previous felony conviction that has marred them for life. There is an additional 65 million people in this country who cannot pass a background check because of an arrest or conviction that they have on their record. 65 million people is about a fifth of the population of this country. Now add all of those people up and add up all of their family members, their parents and their children and their brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and wives and cousins who have all been affected by this. And you are looking at a significant portion of this nation's population. Well over a third, if not more, maybe up to half that have been directly affected by drug laws or our criminal justice system. And when you look at the actual numbers, violent crime, sociopathic behavior, all of these things stay almost constant in every population, in every social dynamic. You have a roughly like 10% uh, you know, variance, deviation from the norm as far as sociopaths go. Uh, and violent crime, which is the primary issue that has been hung out for our need for drug laws to protect from crime, and then when we don't believe that, then we say it's to protect the children or what have you. But crime has steadily gone down for over 40 years. And uh, crime is at its lowest rate, and the murder rate's at, at its lowest rate since the Johnson administration, the mid-60s. Uh, crime peaked in 1975-ish, and then again in 1992. 75 uh, was a mixture of the end of the Vietnam War, the stagflation crisis, uh, the changing cultural mores that were opening up things like sexual freedom and chemical freedom and artistic freedom through Hollywood and the whole director's revolution. And all of that was kind of leading to a society that had been like lied to and hustled by their leaders for so long. Vietnam was the kind of final straw. And, you know, you figure if a culture looks at its most exalted leaders and they all are lying, cheating, and stealing and murdering, uh, what's the point of obeying any laws anyway, right? It was like a cultural rebellion. The crime wave in the early 90s was about the crack epidemic, pure and simple. Uh, one of the worst scourges, scourges, is the word, to ever hit uh, our culture. 
And so if you're a conservative, you look at all this and you go, well, that's great. It's great that there's that many people in prison. It means we're doing our job. That's why crime's so low. Okay, well, you look at the people in prison, you realize that on average about 60% of them are there for drug-related crimes, nonviolent crimes, crimes of consciousness, crimes of lifestyle, crimes of cognitive liberty, right? What they had on them or what they ingested into their body or who they were, whose body they were trying to get into, these are all the vice crimes that we end up punishing people for forever. And meanwhile, of course, it's a trite analogy by now, but, you know, the people on Wall Street can loot billions and trillions from people's retirement savings and go unpunished all the time. Uh, so why is this? Why do we punish those people? Well, and not, you know, the people on Wall Street. Well, our society's ordered into three classes. All Western civilization is. You know, for 10,000 years, we've been modeling our civilization after Babylon and Samaria. And I don't know whether they got it from up here or down here or wherever they got the idea, but the pyramid and that paradigm all represents a kind of a three-class system. The best way to kind of understand how things operate in this world is to pick up George Orwell's 1984 and flip to the middle. There's a little book inside that was uh, supposed to be a, written by uh, Emmanuel Goldstein, who's the kind of Trotsky character in the book. And it's called The Theory and Practice of Oligarchical Collectivism, right? And it basically just explains everything that we talk about today when we talk about the 1% ruling the world. The 1%, the Occupy movement, all that. It's just the most modern and contemporized iteration of this eternal struggle between the high, the middle, and the low. So for the lower classes, the poorer classes, which generally in this country are people of color, Drug laws have always been used as a way to control them, right? It's a way of attacking a culture. It's a way of legally kind of removing a culture from a mixed space. So the first drug laws were in San Francisco in the you know, late 1800s meant to keep nice middle-class white women out of opium dens because there was kind of an epidemic around the turn of the century with opium in household products and bored women sitting at home doing nothing but taking them all day long and getting strung out, right? Coca-Cola had cocaine in it. You know, it was a kind of an interesting time that ultimately led to the Harrison Narcotics Act in 1914, which is the first kind of global piece of drug policy that the U.S. tried to push on everyone else. Um, so uh, do we really want to stop them from using drugs? No, of course not. Um, why do you say that, Charles? Well, I say that because what ends up happening in an economy that is prosperous is that the lower classes are given work. Uh, they're given employment. And that employment gives them wages, which they then turn back into the economy by buying goods and services, right? Simple equation. Well, we brought all of these immigrants to our country to create that cl working class that would build our nation for us. And then when we became prosperous, we gave them all a great living. And we had social programs, and we had all kinds of things for a little brief period of time. And then things changed, and the economy changed, and the world changed, and suddenly we weren't the same. We weren't as rich, we weren't as powerful, but we kept growing in population. And pretty soon, that labor became surplus. It became surplus population. It became too many people, not enough jobs, not enough work. So what, what happens to a community when the factory is sent away? 
Well, in most of the cities of this country, in the poorer areas, vice crimes become the replacement economy, and the kind of fight against the vice crimes becomes the other replacement economy. So in the Midwest, for example, where I lived, it was a very prosperous manufacturing and agricultural region. But over the last 30 years, it deindustrialized and offshored the labor to cheaper markets, and big agro came in and bought up all the family farms and put all the farmers out of business. So half of them turned to police force, prison guard, probation officer, court supervisor, and the other half turned to selling drugs. What they all had in common was that they had to feed their children, feed their families, pay their rent. When you're a young black kid from the city and you've had no opportunities for decent education and you have no advancement opportunities, but you can get this here bag of something something and you can go on the corner and in a couple hours you might have a couple thousand dollars and that thousand dollars buys you respect buys you clothing it buys you a car it buys you a home it buys you all these things that working a decent honest job doesn't get you anymore and so okay is the war on drugs about stopping this about stopping this this illegal activity well not really <laughs> because that money still circulates in the economy. And so the people that are living here are still spending that cash. It's going around one way or the other. It's still circulating. So it's surplus labor, or surplus population, all right? Now that's what they deal with largely in the lower classes and it's a simple operation. Most of the time their lives are very hard. Most of the time they're looking for an escape. Drugs provide a very easy escape. Most of the drugs that are most popular in those classes are anesthetizing drugs, alcohol, heroin, you know, tobacco. Cocaine is a little bit different. Uh, cocaine is a crazy drug that affects everybody kind of almost the same way. Um, but what it does do is create a lot of money really fast. And I'm going to get into the governmental aspects of it. They're, they're kind of the government's input and their, uh, what am I saying, the, their um, history in this way. Uh, by the way, I've been working 20-hour days on Fractal Nation for the last, like, eight days, so I'm a little bit tired today. So if I t space out for a second, it's just because I'm trying to regain my train of thought. Um, so anyway, if you look on any street corner in any American city, you'll see a liquor store, and you'll see a bunch of people hanging around that liquor store. And you don't see that in affluent neighborhoods in the same way, although the same substances are there. In poor neighborhoods, you see street dealing. You see open-air markets. So that becomes an easy target for police who are based on a quota system and need to make a certain amount of rest every day, every week, every month in order to advance themselves in the police force. There's also all the drug units the, from the DEA on down that only make their money from seizures. So however, whatever they take when they raid somebody or arrest somebody is what they keep, and that keeps them eating, and it keeps their kids in school and with a home and so on and so forth, right? So the whole battle of supplying and arresting and policing drugs in the lower classes is just a game. It's just a series of jobs. It's economic activity, and it's uh, an ability to weed out and control and monitor most of the people in that class. Because otherwise, what are they doing? They're sitting around, angry, unemployed, 
And eventually they start talking to each other. And when they start talking to each other, they start sharing their grievances. And when they start sharing their grievances, they start talking about what they can do to change their grievances. And this is what we saw in the 1960s and 70s with the black nationalist movement. First with the civil rights movement, but it was a nonviolent movement, and they killed Dr. King. And the black movement said, okay, we're not going to take this shit anymore. We're going to take what's ours. And they started to get organized, and they started to scare the living daylights out of white America. And a weird thing happened right around that time, which was that just around the time that all of these soldiers in Southeast Asia were starting to rebel against their superior officers, fragging and all of that, fragging is when you throw a grenade and kill, you know, blow up your boss, refusing to go out on patrol, insubordination, desertion, right? At the same time, that was a rampant epidemic in Vietnam. There were also uh, riots and severe civil unrest in the cities. Like 35 major urban riots between 1965 and 1968. So what happened right around that time, right around 68? Nixon comes into office, and the whole game changes. And pretty soon, Southeast Asia is flooded with heroin, cheap, high-grade heroin. Where did that heroin come from? Well, it started in Laos, and it was grown by these people called the Hmong that were a peasant tribe that lived in the hills and grew opium, and they had done this for thousands of years. And they were right-wingers. They were anti-communists. And so our CIA flies in there and makes a deal with them. And so in, in exchange for trafficking their opium, we provided them with weapons and training, and we sent them in to fight in Cambodia and to try to repel communist forces, right? That same heroin that ended up went through Thailand, got refined, ended up in Vietnam, created an epidemic amongst the 10 million people that were serving in country at the time, to the point that by 1970, one-third of all active-duty servicemen had a major addiction problem. And the Nixon administration considered it like public health issue and national security issue like number one, two, or three, right up there at the top. They were absolutely terrified of a wave of like drug-addicted, angry highly trained and often armed veterans coming back from Southeast Asia and taking out their frustrations of their experience on the government at the exact same time that there is a black revolution and a student revolution going on. It was a, like a perfect storm nightmare for the powers that be. Well, that same heroin that ended up in Southeast Asia somehow miraculously ended up in the ghettos of America. And suddenly there's the first real big heroin epidemic right in the late 60s. And the net result of that is that it kind of destroyed the movement. The drugs came in and it separated the leaders from each other. It got them caught up so that they were caught up in difficult situations with women and with money and with crimes and other things that compromised them, compromised their ability to lead, their ability to have trust in them, to have integrity in their words, so on and so forth. People, you know, geniuses like Huey Newton were destroyed by crack cocaine, for example, later, right? So many of the great minds were destroyed on heroin, and then there was a lull. There was a kind of an economic restructuring. There was a right-wing revolution in the early 80s, and that fire in the black community got rekindled, and through the late 70s, it started to grow again. 
Bob Marley started singing international hits about revolution and about the black man rising up. And then suddenly he catches this aggressive form of cancer and dies, and I'm just going to leave that in your lap, and you can think about that your own way. Look up Alex, uh, what's his name? He wrote The Covert War on Rock, Alex Constantine. Amazing book. Uh, goes into all of the old COINTEL profiles about rock stars and movement leaders that were targeted by COINTELPRO and all of the questionable circumstances with those people's deaths that were never reported in the public. Jimi Hendrix, Bob Marley were both, according to Constantine, hits by the CIA because of their support of the black nationalist movement. Jimi Hendrix started playing benefits for the Black Panthers right before he was killed, right? Right before he died, sorry. So in the 80s then, America found itself in the exact same situation it found itself in in Vietnam, which was they needed to fight a covert war that was not authorized by Congress out in another country where they couldn't fund it from taxpayer budgets or congressional just, uh, you know, um, budgets. And they had to be real quiet about it. And so they trafficked all this opium in Vietnam, and then when they needed to go into Central America, into Nicaragua, into El Salvador, into Costa Rica, they started doing it with cocaine. And massive amounts of cocaine came north from the south, and guns went south. And the money stayed in the middle, Panama to be specific, which is why Manuel Noriega is in a hole and will never get out is because he was the middleman between the Medellin and the Cali cartels and the Bush or the Reagan administration under the supervision of former Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush, former director of the CIA, who was involved during the end of the Vietnam War when all of this activity was still going on. In fact, it's the same team. If you look at the names involved, the same people that ran the Air America operation in Southeast Asia ran the same operation in Central America. Okay. So where did we learn this? We learned this from the colonial empires. We learned this from the British in particular, who fought two wars with China so that they could have the right to get the Chinese people strung out on opium that they were growing in India. Uh, the French, the Spanish, the Dutch, the Portuguese all had opium monopolies. They had sugar cane. They had... Alcohol, whiskey, rum, uh, they had tobacco, they had tea, they had spices. These are like the things that drove the colonies. And later they would have, you know, cocaine and different forms of alcohol and different substances. But ultimately anything that brought a high price, anything that was special, anything that altered consciousness <laughs> was very profitable. And this allowed expansion of the colonies, expansion of the independent companies that were running it, and a kind of autonomous operation that wasn't necessarily supervised by the governments. The United States picked up an opium monopoly when it took over the Philippines from Spain, but what it chose to do was to make it illicit so that the prices could be driven up and it could be you know, uh, much more profitable on the back end, and they could essentially cater to a big growing political movement uh, towards temperance that was happening at the time, right? It's important when we talk about war on consciousness and a war on drugs to understand that this battle's been going on for a very long time. And if you take away the distinction between tobacco and alcohol and cannabis and cocaine or alkaloids or whatever, what you've got is a war against altering consciousness. 
And so, like, in the 1800s, for example, alcohol was, was a, an absolute devastating force across America, particularly in the working classes. It was so much so that the women of America got together, formed a movement, and had prohibition ultimately passed. It was the housewives, the mothers, the sisters of all of these alcoholic men, millions of them, something like, you know, they estimated one-third of the country was like awash in alcoholism, that the man would go off to the factory or the mine or whatever and work all week, bring home, or get the money, go to the bar, drink it up, and then come home with nothing. And this is like a story that was told over and over and over again. And the government didn't like people drinking because the ethnic groups that came over from Europe would get together. In, the Germans would get together in the beer halls, and the Irish would get together in the pubs, and they would talk politics, and they would talk about how they were getting screwed over by the overclasses and what they were going to do about it. And they, it was a very vibrant culture that the Protestants and the English didn't like very much, right? Chicago, where I came from, was a perfect example of this cauldron of mixing and like where all these crazy laws came from, and even the Great Chicago Fire was blamed on an Irish woman, because it was a political move to try to demonize the Irish, right? So, the, you know, the fight against prohibition lasted quite a long time. It was like, a, you know, 40-year-long movement before they got it passed, and then another, like, what was it, 14 years that they had it before they repealed it? And in that time, the public opinion shifted drastically. And every time you look at a drug epidemic or a crime outbreak in our days, you know, the, the current times, you, what you see is the same type of pattern. The response by the public is to want more enforcement, to want more restriction, more control, right, in the interest of preserving order, right? So, like, after Prohibition, in came the whole, you know, 60s consciousness revolution, Right? You know, after the war and all that. So you had a bunch of drinkers go off to war, and then they had kids, and then their kids went off to college, which most of them didn't get to do. They didn't get to go to college. You know, they got to get a job, get, or maybe get a GI Bill or something like that if they were lucky. But their kids were born into affluence, and their kids got to experiment. Here's where we're moving into the middle of the high, middle, low paradigm, right? And the middle class has always been in this state of flux, and they basically are always trying to overtake the high. Right? They're trying to take their place and rise to a higher station and force the, that upper class back down into the middle. And the way they do that is usually to enlist the help of the lower classes to fight their battles for them, promising them these utopian world, which never materializes. And once the war is done and the revolution has taken place, they're shoved back down to where they were. Right? And over and over and over, through time immemorial, as Orwell says, this struggle has happened. So the middle classes, they get more affluence. They get to expand their consciousness more in an intentional way. They have free time to explore and experiment. And that's what started to happen in the 60s. And once again, what, what ended up happening when they experimented was that revolutionary ideas started to percolate out. And instead of the old kind of Marxist revolution theory, which they had seen for so long, suddenly there was an even more insidious and dangerous revolution, which was this revolution of values, of morals, of sex, of drugs, of rock and roll. And this was like an epic transformation of our culture. And we came very close to a full-on revolution at the end of the 60s and in the early 70s. 
So ever since then, we've had this extremely drastic policy towards drugs, but it's been kind of like separated out. So if you're poor or black, you're most likely going to go to prison and most likely get arrested for it. If you're affluent and white, depending on what you do, you can mostly get away with it. If you're rich, you can get anything you want. But what they're trying to stop more than anything is ideas, because what it is is a war of ideas. And it is a war of control, uh, breaking away from an external control factor like a government or a religion or an ideology or an economy that enslaves you and thinking outside the box and in revolutionary terms to try to solve it. So why am I sitting in the middle of the Black Rock Desert talking to you guys? Like, who on earth had the crazy idea to come out here? You know, And what kind of a culture do we live in where we have to come out here to talk about something like this or to experiment with something like this? I mean, originally Burning Man was created so that there would be a free autonomous zone for people to do whatever they wanted to do. And the feds were like, whatever, you guys are crazy. You want to go hang out in the desert? Go for it. Knock yourself out. They figured it would last a week once and they'd never go back. Ultimately, it became a money-making thing, an economy, an economic engine that powers much, must, uh, much of the state of Nevada's economy. Beyond the gambling and prostitution, like Burning Man's like the third largest city in Nevada when it's here. And there are entire towns all the way from San Francisco to here that have, built, that have been built and rebuilt simply on the money the burners spend going back and forth every year. I just uh, spent a couple of months in Portugal at Boom Festival in a country where the drug laws have been changed to decriminalize personal use. And this happened because a drug epidemic destroyed an entire generation in Portugal, the people of my generation, Gen Xers, you know, we're all in like our 40s now, late 30s. And almost everybody I met at Boom Festival who was of that generation was ravaged by this drug epidemic. And it was heroin that hit Portugal primarily. And it came in because when Portugal lost its colonies in the mid-1970s after this awful, disastrous war to try to retain Angola and a couple others and East Timor, uh, they lost their connection to their cultural um, usage of hashish and marijuana, which came from you know, mostly Angola. And it was, you know, spliff culture is what happens in Portugal. And everybody's smoking spliffs all day long. Uh, it's, you know, coffee spliff. It's like a simple thing, like Amsterdam, right? Uh, suddenly it was gone. And in its place, like, people started pushing opium and pushing heroin. And people started smoking heroin instead. And before you know it, they the other thing is the Portuguese were not, like, really integrated in much of the European cultural or economic system so they were kind of isolated they were kind of like holding on to their old you know cultural values much more and much longer they kind of had an inferiority complex they were kind of isolated and in the end they didn't they weren't too hip is really what it boils down to you know they didn't have the same cultural exposure that paris and london and berlin had you know they were kind of isolated communist and so a drug epidemic was, you know, like cancer that just swept through them. But the Portuguese are also kind of a homogenous culture, and they kind of all got together. 
And they said, okay, we need to solve this. And so they took a governmental approach and they voted in a plan where they decriminalized the drugs and they created a social service system where people can go, if they get in trouble with the law, they go and instead of getting booked and processed and going to jail, they go and see a panel of three social workers who assess them and then give them a treatment plan. And they're sent off into treatment. So it's a harm reduction program instead of a punitive program. And it's wildly successful, and everybody in drug policy across the world is always talking about you have to go to Portugal. Okay. So there's Boom, and Boom is a dedicated psychedelic festival. And people come there to blow their heads open in a way that would even shame most burners. Right? But it doesn't mean that it's a free-for-all. Even in that country, on the way into Boom, there were 70 heavily armed paramilitary or military raids, paramilitary raids, cops and military, that took, you know, a significant cache of, like, kilos of drugs, guns, knives, counterfeit euro, the whole nine yards, 70 of them, All right? So even in a place where they say you can have them, the police are still going to be there a attacking you, controlling you, taxing you for your lifestyle choice, right? So this is why we call it a war. And it's a war on consciousness because it is about controlling how you think and act and it comes at us not just through what we put into our bodies to expand our consciousness, but also what we receive directly through the Internet, through television, through mass media in particular. Mass media is all about this stuff called perception management. It's about literally managing how you perceive things. It used to be called public relations, and before it was called public relations, it was called propaganda. And what it aspires to do is to keep you in the dark and keep you believing a myth a myth a cultural myth that binds you to the culture of the nation state and with us we've got a whole bunch of them in america you know and they're all fucking ridiculous if you actually like pick up a history book and start to look into them and you know the founding fathers and freedom and liberty and all of this and they're just like these ideas uh, and then this guy, Leo Strauss, came around. He started talking about this idea of, you know, a culture can only be held together if it has a common enemy. So there needs to be a common enemy to point it at and a flag to unite it behind, right? And there is this thing called the noble lie, which is where it's okay in the interest of the greater good to lie to the ignorant masses because they don't really understand and we're just taking care of them, right? I mean, all of this is about keeping people in the dark and keeping them pliable. It also ultimately boils down to money when we talk about cognitive liberty and we talk about, you know, self-medicine and treating oneself and learning and expanding. Uh, I, I don't know how many other people here, but I'm a medical cannabis patient and I consider myself a legitimate medical cannabis patient in that I take it for, like, legitimate ailments I got, like, crushed joints and sh surgery all over the place, and my bones ache all the time, and blah, blah, blah. And, wow, why did it take until I was only in my mid-30s to be able to get the permission to do this, like we have in California, right? Um, but ultimately, like, what, did, what is that all about? And it's like, pharmaceutical company can patent this and make money. If you grow it in your ground, well, not only do you get the benefits of it and there's no taxation on it, but you can also, like, amass a lot of money and do other things. You know, um, you know, there was a, a lot of understanding by the government by how much the drug underground, the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, for example, uh, one of many 
uh, underground drug-producing movements funded the revolutionary movements of the day, gave them lots of money, right? Gave SDS and the Black Panthers and so on. And that stuff is still going on, and the government knows this. It's kind of gotten weird, but, but like the weed economy supports a lot of subversive activity in California, and it is the number one cash economy. Uh, and what's going on this year is kind of funny, because after, what has it been, 96 to 22, almost 15-odd years of Prop 215 being passed, and dispensaries and systems growing up all over California, and billions of dollars being made uh, in that economy. Uh, this year it all came almost crashing down to nothing, except for specific municipalities and counties who had voted it as okay. Because the Obama administration was losing voters in California, losing right-wing and centrist voters. And they sacrificed medical cannabis in order to boost their numbers with conservatives and moderates. Now, I know this because when they raided Oaksterdam University and shut down all of the dispensaries inside Oakland, uh, one of my friends who is uh, American for Safe Access kind of intervention person, they go and protest whenever there's a raid on a clinic or a dispensary. She talked to the lead DEA agent and asked him why uh, they were raiding this clinic that had been around for a long time and why now? And the agent said, because Obama's losing votes. And he said, and frankly, we're okay with this because when you guys close, the black market opens up. And we know who all those people are and they're going to get really fat, and they're going to sell a lot of weed, and we're going to wait for the right moment, and we're going to go in and we're going to raid them. They fatten them up for the slaughter is basically what it boils down to. And, uh, you know, most of what went on in California, like right after Obama took office and then over the first couple of years was uh, smashing grab jobs. So when Obama first called off the feds because he said, okay, no more federal raids on medical cannabis clinics, what happened was that the state, local, county, municipal law enforcement came in in their place. And instead of going through the process of a federal raid and a federal, uh, you know, uh, what is it when they, uh, injunction and all that to shut you down, uh, this was just smash and grab. The cops just came in. They knew when a dispensary was doing well. They would wait for them to sell all their product, and they would come in, take all the money, take all the product, and just leave and destroy the place. Shoot the dog if there was a dog there. That's, like, common policy. It's no secret that psychedelics change consciousness. It's no secret that they're revolutionary. I mean, we've known this for a while. What is absolutely fascinating to me is how easily that culture was dismissed so that today... A simple stereotype of a guy in a tie-dye saying something really weird will dismiss an entire hour of scientific research vetted and proven that a doctor can tell you about psychedelic medicine. One bad stereotype. And I believe, and I'm sure the people who live through it believe, that this is a direct result of the propaganda that began with the right wing and Reagan in 1980 and was inculcated into now two generations, my generation as Gen Xers, and then the Echo Boomers, who've like grown up thinking that like hippies were stupid and Woodstock was crazy, and you know we should just, if you do drugs, they're bad, and yada, yada, yada. And this whole idea of the word drug and the word substance and all this stuff, it's like it's all 
basic programming meant to change like how we look at the whole thing by casting it in moral terms you know it's not it's a health issue it's a biochemical issue it's a metabolic thing more than anything else ultimately all the substances you put in your body are a catalyst towards natural reactions so what are we really talking about here how do we differentiate between this drug here and this drug here and what it all boils down to is is it profitable can it be patented can it be used for social control this is what I like to call the scattershot version of my talk, the sleep deprivation 2.0 version. Um, I, uh, I've lived through this myself, by the way. I mean, part of my whole journey involved me becoming a drug addict for 10 years. I was a crack addict, by the way. like to smoke crack a lot. <laughs> and it, I saw, I crossed the cultural divide and went into a, the part of society that they don't want nice middle-class white boys going into. And I saw exactly how that world operates. Because, you know, when you see a, a neighborhood flooded with drugs and flooded with guns, you know they had to come from somewhere. And as, you know, Dick Gregory used to say, our people don't own transport planes. Our people don't own semi-trucks. Our people don't own, don't manufacture submachine guns. You know, somebody had to come in and sell them all that stuff. Somebody had to move all that stuff from somewhere. You know, Jimmy down the block didn't move 500 kilos from Columbia. Somebody had to do that, right? Anyway, I'm sorry that I'm rambling on Palenque Norte because I've been really honored to be a part of this. And uh, I'm really honored that I'm in the company of people that I am uh, speaking in this series. Um, it is a nice kind of completion to a long journey that at one point had me doubting I was going to get out. And I went through prison, and I went through recovery, and I put my life back together, and I faced down the ultimate question with suicide and was saved by shamanic medicine, by ayahuasca, literally saved at the last moment um, when I had decided and stockpiled the drugs I was going to use to kill myself and decided on the date and everything, and then by chance, a person I had only met once before on the day I got out of prison four months earlier dropped by this party I was at that I w was invited to at the last second and told me about this ayahuasca when I uncontrollably blurted out to her that I was going to commit suicide when I went home. And I made a pact to stick around for two weeks until this ceremony came. I didn't know anything about it. I just kind of knew it was weird, and you threw up a lot. But I had, like, this whole death-rebirth purging experience that, like, had me skipping home in the morning. And I started a whole new life on J January fifteenth, two 2006. And a year later, I got here. I started growing my hair on that day, and I, like, committed to going to Burning Man on that day. I can't tell you why. I just did. And I grew dreads uh, down to here until this March. Seven years of healing that went into me. Seven years of work with this and other shamanic medicines and plants and MDMA, which was, was what got me sent to prison because I was turned on to MAPS's work almost 10 years ago and was u taking it to try to get through the post-traumatic stress disorder that I had from a lifetime of violence and abuse and rape and, you know, street insanity being a drug addict. Um, you know, so, like, I have such an incredible connection to this medicine and this culture 
I, it pains me to see how underground it's been forced. I mean, I'm very glad that MAPS has done their diligent work to get it out into the open and get a lot of great media these days. Uh, and getting to just start to maybe begin changing people's attitudes. But it, we still got a long way to go. And there are more police out here than there's ever been before. And as the head of, like, a very large sound camp that had to deal with this last year, they are out here in a way that they've never been before. And they're not out here to bust people. Why? Because almost everybody who comes here has money. And almost everybody who comes here is white. And, and they all go home to some productive endeavor or they get... They start all over again and get into the Burning Man cycle. Either way, they're not a threat. They're out here having fun, and we are taxing them for their fun. And that's what the police do here. They don't want to bust you because it costs too much money. It's too much paperwork. It's too much of a hassle to take you from here to Gerlach Empire, Carroll, Pershing, Wapaho, Washoe, whatever it is, Reno, and bust you. So what they do is they tax you. And we're like shooting fish in a barrel out here. So they'll just find where we all are. And one by one, go in and bust us and charge us as much as we can possibly imagine because we will pay it because it keeps us from going to prison. And they walk out of here millions of dollars richer. I don't know what pisses me off more, like being put sent to prison over the use of the substances I choose or allowing the police force to get fatter and richer and buy second cars for themselves over the use of, of my you know, substances. Um, it's a vehicle, and we have to find a way to stop it. And the thing is, like, I was blessed, you know. At Boom, I had a huge European crowd, and they're really plugged into this stuff, and they're politically active. I got to tell you, I could do a 20, 30 gigs across this country and barely draw, you know, 100 people talking about this stuff because people don't want to hear it. It bores them. It scares them. It means they have to do something. It's a drag, man. It's a fucking drag. Why do I want to be involved? Why, why do I want to go fight that? I just, I'm fine. They're going to leave me alone. I'm just going to do my shit over here. Why do I have to go get political about it? And you're right. You don't if you can get away with it. But do you really want to hide? Like, do you really want to live under the fear of criminal justice and losing your life? Do you really want to feel ashamed to not be able to tell other people, hey, you know what? Like, uh, I, I use psychedelics. I'm afraid they're going to look at you with that crazy, like, oh, you're one of those people, aren't you? You know, fear is an amazing motivator. Um, so I always encourage people to speak out, to own your shit, to stand proud with your use, to talk about what it's done for you in a positive way to everybody that you can. Don't be a proselytizer. Don't be obnoxious. But just make things happen. Get involved in your communities. Get involved in initiatives to change laws. Get involved in, you know, initiatives to repeal drug laws. Like, try to do something, but more than anything else, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your mom that it's not all that they told you, that it's actually something different. Um, it's on all of us to make this the world that we want. And if we really want the freedom for our children that we've been fighting for and our parents were fighting for, then something's got to give. And we are in this unique moment in time where we just might see that opening to make something happen. So keep your eyes on it. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to open up for some questions if anybody has them. I know that given the disjointed nature of my sleep-deprived talk, if you don't have questions for me, I won't take offense to it. We love you, Charles. Thank you, Ken. Thank <laughs> you so much. Thank you very much. 
you're an inspiration. Um, I would wonder if you had some comments to make about, uh, as a cultural agent that's basically advocating for a, a criminal culture in this at this time, uh, what are the consequences of that for you? Or just speak to that a little bit. I've been thinking about it a lot, about how people like McKenna and Leary and things we were talking about earlier, the price that brought into their personal lives to stand up and be honest and just speak the truth. And how's that affecting you now? I don't think anyone really takes me seriously. So I think I skirt through a lot. Um, it's different now because I'm in my 40s and I cut my dreads off. And I'm not a fire spinner. And I'm not kind of in all of these easily dismissible things that people can just look at somebody and chuck them out. But, I mean, you know, you got to look at it. On, on paper, what am I? You know, I'm like a three-time felon, you know. Uh, drug convictions all up and down the block, a history of crack addiction, like, you know, like, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. So I've had like insane behavior my whole life. Like if you, if I was running for president and they had to get dirt on me, trust me, it would take a year just to get through all the dirt. I mean, it's like crazy. So I don't think that I've ever been like a threat in that sense uh, to the, to the establishment because I don't fit in. I never have. I'm kind of a freak of nature. Leary was Harvard. He was Harvard. He was with the best and the brightest, and he was of the proper class. And they had ideations that he got from Huxley, you, you know, about spreading it up the chain. And we know we have the story about Kennedy and all that. I mean, think about that. So, like, I think that people like me and, like, you know, even like Daniel Pinchbeck, like, nobody really, like, even though he's the, kind of the most visible of this kind of cadre of writers, like, I mean, he's not, like, perceived as a threat, He's perceived as, like, you know, somebody who, like, has his spiel and thinks that he's a big lizard from, you know, from uh, the Mayans. And that's kind of like the attitude of the government. Like, who, who is this person? Whatever. This is not a threat. Um, but as things change and as, like, movements rise and as people are looking for something new, I think that there are people that are, who are speaking their mind now that will become those leaders and will become those threats. I don't know if that's going to be me or not. I don't aspire for it. What I do is to speak my truth because it's the deal I made with that power up there when it gave me a second life. That power said, I'll let you live and I'll give you joy. And I said, I will give you my life back for that. And I will spend my life spreading this word and talking about my shame so that you can see that there is pride in shame, that we can own it and get past it, you know? And so I don't do this for, to organize a movement. I gave up on politics. I used to be an organizer for the Green Party. I used to get into the street and get my ass beat by police. I thought that was cool. You know, I cried for the Occupy movement. They were fools. They never should have done that. They just set themselves up for, for two things. One, to get beat to a pulp, and two, to justify the police presence from here on out. To normalize the sight of Ninja Turtles, as I call them, riot cops, marching down the streets of tanks and sonic dispersal cannons in the streets of all of this high-tech weaponry that is called non-lethal crowd control. You know, low-frequency guns that make you shit yourself. These are all real. I've seen them. High-frequency things that shatter your uh, eardrums and disorient you. Microwaves that hit you and fry your system for a second. The point where you drop in compliance. Like, 
they spend a lot of money on this stuff and they want to use it. And they know what's coming, you know. Everything that's going on here is because they know what's coming and they've known for a long time. And as things start to collapse, people rise up. And the best way to control them, they think, is through direct force. So the, the true revolutionary leaders, I think, are going to be the ones to figure out how to not go in the street and how to disseminate the revolution by other means. Um, I'd like to be a part of it, I could say. But at this point, you know, my friends that are in, like, the military, CIA, you know, intelligence, you know, they're not, like, operative-type people, but they're sources and they're people that you talk to. And FBI in particular, they're, I mean, they are obsessed with Arabs, foreigners. I mean, they literally feel like they're being besieged on all sides, and everything at home is to keep everybody at home tamped down. Uh, so, I don't, I, I mean... I wish I could, like, give you an answer that didn't sound either, like, trite or megalomaniacal, you know, because I just don't know. Uh, it, it, it's so easy to discredit someone these days, too. You know, the inter with the Internet, you can have, like, a fake video and a rumor totally ruin somebody overnight if they have a big enough reach. Uh, I also think that the real revolution is going to come from women, personally. I think enough guys have tried to lead the revolution, and it's always the same thing because men have the same intention. We always enter into a war paradigm, and we've got to stop that war paradigm. Man, at least the feminine will allow us to get out of that war paradigm and get into something that is a collaborative negotiation of, of disputes and grievances, you know? Um, but I don't know what that's going to look like, you know? Um, I, as I understand it, um, Oregon and Colorado are looking at legalization this November. Um, what do you think? Uh, where do you think that's going to head? Do you think that's going to start paving a way for some sane drug policy in this country? I think a memo went down from the White House recently that said, "Don't interfere with legalization because it's an awesome opportunity for us to make some money." I think they see that not only can they tax it, but they can also tax people who get they'll still bust you for it but instead of it being a criminal offense it'll be a ticketable offense and they'll just add 20 more cops to every force to go out and bust every weed smoker with a ticket and they're going to start making money that way that's why i think the shift happened i mean uh prop uh what was it i'm sorry 18 the legalization initiative in california got shot down because it had more money and because uh conservative voters were angry they felt that they had been duped by Proposition 215, moderates and conservatives, because, you know, almost 90% of the state voted for it. It was, like, overwhelmingly positive in favor of medicinal marijuana in 1996, except that the conservative and moderates thought that they were voting for uh, terminally ill patients to be able to have cannabis in their last days. You know, not like, uh, well, I take it for my, you know, right? People abusing it the black market getting involved and turning out, you know, doctor mills and all this stuff and get your recommendation online. That shit pisses off the right wing and they got really upset by it. And what they've been trying to figure out since then is how we can integrate legalization into it. And I think they want to do it. I know that Philip Morris has bought 50,000 acres in Mendocino County. I know that there is a patent out, not only for, for like a Monsanto type cannabis plant, but also a killer weed that can be dropped into the, uh, you know, the existing females all over the, the... So, like, basically one runaway male plant in the right place can wipe out, like, 
hundreds and hundreds of acres of, of female plants and just pollinate them all at once. <laughs> and it's like a ripple effect. And there's genetically modified versions of this that have been patented, you know, that I've heard people talk about. And I definitely have heard about the, you know, or, and seen the documentation on, like, the whole land buying and, and the whole, like, trying to get a hold, get inside the industry. Um, I think we should be pretty ready to see pot get legalized s starting in small places and roaming around just like the 70s. And, you know... I, I, Depending on the economics, it'll either, like, continue to grow until it's not an issue or, you know, there'll be another conservative backlash in 20 years, you know? I don't know. Awesome. Wow. Thanks for coming out on a Tuesday, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for putting up with my rambling, sleep-deprived talk. Uh, again, my, my book is Exile Nation. Uh, my website is exilenation.org. I also am a documentary filmmaker. I have a... Uh, film up there called the Exile Nation Project, which is an oral history archive of interviews of people who have gone through the criminal justice system and been involved in our drug laws. I would check it out when you get a chance. I'm currently in post-production on a new documentary about the whole deportation issue. And uh, I hope all of you come down to 2 o'clock and E to Fractal Nation because we are opening tonight and tomorrow. And we're going to have a big opening ceremony tomorrow night. And... Uh, if we had another half hour, I'd tell you all about why I do this type of work out here and about what building community and post-apocalyptic training is, but I'll save that for another day. Uh, again, Chris and everyone and Annie and the Tea House and Palenque, thank you for letting me be a part of this. Uh, this is a true honor, and I'm really, really psyched to have been able to talk with you guys today. Thanks, Charlie. We're happy to have you with us. And just to let you know, I'm not sure if you noticed the chandelier here, but um, the chandelier has seen other psychedelic discussions when it was living above Tim Leary's dining room table in, in his house. So we've brought it out here to sort of set the space. So, um, so we have Ken Adams coming on up next. He's going to talk about producing the Terrence McKenna Experience movie, and then we're going to screen the movie at about 8.30, right after the sun goes down. So um, stick around, take a 5- to 10-minute water break, encourage your friends to come over, and we'll keep having an awesome time. So thank you, guys. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, since my throat is still a little bit scratchy, uh, you know, I don't want to stretch it by doing a lot of talking right now. Uh, however, there are a couple of things that I want to be sure you didn't miss. One of the uh, things that Charles mentioned just now was how the heroin epidemic hit the streets in Vietnam during the American War there via the Golden Triangle. And in case you're interested in that history, there's a, a really terrific book that covers that story in great detail. That story and more, in fact. It's titled, The Politics of Heroin, CIA Complicity in the Global Drug Trade, and it's uh, by Alfred W. McCoy, who uh, happens to be a professor of history at the University of Wisconsin. And for anyone interested in the deep background about the drug war, uh, well, I think this book is probably required reading. Uh, I've got a copy of the original publication from 1972, as well as the uh, 1991 edition, but uh, there's now an even later edition available, and uh, I can promise you that after reading that book, you'll never again see the CIA and the U.S. government in the same light as you did before reading it. 
Another thing that Charles mentioned was his expectation that the uh, state of Oregon would be one of the first states to legalize cannabis. Well, guess what? The uh, measure failed uh, in Oregon this time, but it did pass in both the state of Washington and the state of Colorado. So a Rocky Mountain High can now be a legal part of a ski vacation, uh, at least for those who can afford such things. And the one thing that I'd like to pass along about those legalization votes is this. Over and over and over, you're going to be hearing the phrase that recreational use of cannabis has now been approved in two states. But think about that for a moment. The way that this vote is being framed uh, still, I think, marginalizes pot smokers. How many times have you ever heard about the recreational use of alcohol? I've never heard booze called a recreational drug, even though that's how it's uh, almost always used. So the cannabis community here on the West Coast is encouraging everybody to drop the word recreational and instead say that responsible adult use has been approved. And uh, since I'm on this little rant, uh, (laughs) I just can't let this pass. Recently, uh, I heard one of my friends say that there have been times when he'd been using cannabis so much that he didn't seem to be able to get high and had to stop using it for a few days so that it would, quote, work again. Now, uh, stop and think about that for a minute. Just because he wasn't feeling high, it didn't mean that all of the other benefits of cannabis were denied him. Maybe he wasn't high, but he still received the anti-cancer, anti-aging, and anti-dementia benefits, along with a whole host of other good things that uh, come from using this magical herb. So, while he didn't feel as if he was getting high, uh, nonetheless, his responsible adult use of the plant still provided him with many reasons to keep on toking. And in fairness, uh, I'm sure that he agrees with this and uh, just had a moment where he didn't completely think through his comments. And, uh, and of course, you know, <laughs> I've done the same thing on more than one occasion. So I'm not giving him a hard time here. Uh, I'm just reminding all of us to uh, think through what we're saying from time to time, uh, especially myself. One last thought, and uh, then I'm out of here. Uh, my nose is stopping up again. <laughs> Pleasant thought to pass along to you, isn't it? Anyway, uh, I've been remiss lately in not saying much about what's going on with the Occupy movement. And uh, unless you're specifically looking for news about it, you may think that it's uh, faded away. But uh, that's far from the mark. While the initial phase of uh, getting people's attention and exposing the fact that our police departments are rapidly becoming militarized, uh, well, that phase has ended. But the quiet, behind-the-scenes work of the movement continues... Uh, For instance, there have been many home foreclosures that have been prevented after some of our occupiers became involved. And uh, during the recent superstorm on the east coast of the U.S., it was people from Occupy Wall Street who collected food and other supplies to give out during the recovery period. In fact, uh, during the storm, I also saw uh, some of our old friends like Tim Poole and other video streamers reporting live from the scene, which means that this new form of citizen journalism that uh, sprung up at the Occupy movement is still alive and well. But my favorite tactic that the movement is now using is the one called Rolling Jubilee, which is a bailout of the uh, people by the people. Basically, uh, Rolling Jubilee is a project that buys debt for pennies on the dollar. However, instead of collecting the debt or hounding the people for the money, it abolishes the debt. For example, uh, in one case I read about, they bought $14,000 worth of bad credit card debt for only $500. 
And then instead of hounding the debtors from here to their graves, they simply forgave the debt. They just uh, tore up the notes and canceled it. And uh, since one out of every seven Americans is now being vigorously pursued by debt collectors, uh, well, it seems to me that the Occupy movement is going to find a lot of allies with this program. And this is all being done through donations to uh, RollingJubilee.org, which, uh, as of right now, has already raised over $100,000 in donations uh, that is going to be used to cancel over $2 million of debts. And I'll put a link to their website in the uh, program notes for this podcast, which, uh, as you know, you can get to via psychedelicsalon.org. And I think it would really be worth your time, uh, if you live here in the States at least, to take a quick look at their website, uh, particularly the page of stats concerning the mountain of debt that's uh, crushing almost everyone here, particularly the students who uh, collectively owe over a trillion dollars for educations that uh, so far haven't provided the high-paying jobs needed to uh, pay off their debt. Well, uh, for somebody who wanted to avoid politics today, uh, <laughs> I guess that I've only partially succeeded. But I hope that uh, between my few words and the brilliant talk by Charles Shaw that we just heard, that uh, maybe you have some new ideas about ways in which you can add your mind to helping us all create a more just, loving, and uh, joyous society, both for ourselves and for those who are going to come after us uh, and play this strange game of human life on planet Earth. And for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.